the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern did not waste much time on reforming gun laws in her country. They were announced within days of the Christchurch terror attack in two mosques. Ardern has also announced an inquiry into her country's intelligence services, which begs the question, should Canada do the same? On Monday, crime expert and professor emeritus at the University of Ottawa, Irvin Waller, spoke with Libby Snymer about what was becoming a growing issue. Well, basically what happened was that there was a massacre in Port Arthur in Tasmania. Uh, A guy was trying to beat out the number of people killed in Hungerford and Dunblane in, uh, in England. And the prime minister at the time called John Howard, the national uh, prime minister, basically uh, introduced a series of uh, important gun control measures. He prohibited automatic and semi-automatics. He required the registration of firearms. And he uh, had a a way of buying up uh, prohibited uh, weapons. They actually spent... uh, Half a million, half a billion dollars to uh, buy back various uh, weapons, and the results are um, perhaps clearest on suicides. There's a very dramatic reduction in suicides uh, over time, uh, but the homicide rate in Australia went down, like in other countries, uh, but has probably gone down more uh, because of this uh, legislation. But I think it's very important to put in context uh, that when you're looking at um, mass killings like happened in Christchurch or like happened in uh, Port Arthur or like happened in Las uh, Vegas, it's the semi-automatic and automatic weapons that enable the uh, these uh, guys to kill so so many people. So... Australia has lived uh, a bit over 20 years without a, uh, a major massacre. They did uh, about two years ago have a, uh, have a, a mass uh, shooting, but it involved significantly fewer uh, people than, than in Christchurch or Las Vegas or in uh, Port Arthur. These are seemingly ideologically motivated mass shootings. So this guy, he had a plan. He was, uh, by all appearances, extremely organized. So, Professor, would a ban on automatic uh, weapons, would that have stopped him? From the evidence we have, he was ideologically motivated. But in other um, mass killings like Las Vegas or like Dunblane, they weren't uh, ideologically um, motivated. Uh, I I think the really important point is that if you limit access to semi-automatic and automatic weapons, then uh, when you get some guy who wants to go and uh, do this ideologically or not, uh, you're going to get generally fewer people killed. Um, yes, this guy seems to have done a lot of planning. 
he also seemed to have done a lot of planning to kill himself. The media coverage I've seen is that he had explosives in his car. So it seems that he was fairly suicidal in his attempts. But the numbers are really important. If you look at Las Vegas, where whatever it was between 50 and 60 people were were killed, this was because they, he was using um, a, a quick fire weapons uh, with, with with bump stocks. And the same is true of this guy going into the first mosque. He was able to kill a lot of people because he had uh, uh, high-powered guns. And he'd acquired these guns uh, legally. Yes, he had a license, um, but he was then uh, able to go and get the guns he wanted uh, without really any uh, any further checks on him. That was Irvin Waller, crime expert and professor emeritus at the University of Ottawa. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. This past Monday, longtime Liberal MP Joyce Murray was named Treasury Board President by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. By adding a woman, the PM maintains his gender balance on Cabinet. Murray takes over in the spot vacated by Jane Philpott, who resigned from Cabinet earlier this month, saying she had lost confidence in the way the government was handling the SNC-Lavalin affair. Also on Monday, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was sworn in and received a standing ovation when he became a member of Parliament, taking his seat in the House of Commons. Singh says he'll use his new position to pressure the Liberal government to take action on affordable housing and lowering prescription drug costs. Libby spoke about the developments, which started the week in Ottawa, with political strategist Conservative Michael Diamond and Liberal Bob Richardson. I think that the appointment of Joyce Murray to Cabinet, frankly, is coming three and a half years too late. I was very surprised that Justin Trudeau passed up someone who had Cabinet experience, having served in two portfolios in Gordon Campbell's B.C. Liberal uh, uh government uh, prior to her election to parliament that she challenged Justin Trudeau and I think that's where we got into the problem for her for a liberal leader she came in second very very distant second but she she ran she helped build the party and she should have been rewarded for that she was someone who is competent is uh, qualified and I'm personally as a Canadian glad to see that finally be rewarded it uh, should have happened uh, three and a half years ago though Bob I'm going to agree with virtually every word that Michael just said. I hate to uh, do this to you, Libby, Uh, (laughs) but uh, I I agree with him. I think she's experienced. I think she's hardworking. Uh, She did a good job in uh, Gordon Campbell's cabinet. Uh, She has been a team player, and she's been the PA and Treasury Board for the last three and a half years. And uh, the good thing about her is she's an adult, and she understands politics. So I think she's going to end up being a good cabinet minister. Uh-huh. And she's not going to uh, resign on issues of principle or anything like that. Well, she's not going to resign. Whether it's an issue of principle is a, is a, is a matter, matters for discussion if you're referring to other issues. But uh, but uh, I think uh, I think she is, let's say, well qualified, knows and understands politics. Uh, did a good job uh, when she was a cabinet minister in BC. And uh, I think she'll be a good president of the Treasury Board. Michael Diamond, is the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould affair starting to fade? 
You know, I don't think it is. Uh, I think, you know, the House is back today, uh, so it will be interesting to see uh, with a new NDP leader there uh, what what the opposition parties do want to talk about and how the media reacts to that. Uh, Any time that we're having these monthly cabinet shuffles now, I think it is a throwback to how we got here. So, so that is keeping it current and relevant to people. But more importantly than the actual scandal that uh, is occupying a lot of our bandwidth right now, it's the uh, harm it's caused to Justin Trudeau's brand of Canada not being back, that he's just a regular politician. That is where we're going to see it uh, impact voters, not the scandal itself, but the, uh, the outcome from that scandal. Let's turn to the budget tomorrow. Michael Diamond, are, are they just going to be buying us with our own money? Look, you know, uh, we saw an attempt to do that uh, in Ontario last year, and it resulted in a government getting uh, going from a majority government to uh, uh, not having official party status. So I hope that uh, that's not what we see. I think Canadians uh, are a bit cynical of uh, election-style budgets, as we've seen a few times recently. Uh, but uh, I'm guessing that's what we'll see. Bob? Um, I, I suspect it'll be a bit of a non-event, um, uh, which fed, federal, bu- federal budgets I found have increasingly been. I, look, I think on a number of the big issues, they've done a, a pretty decent job economically on growth. The best in the G7 on jobs has been good. I think they spend too much money, and I think uh, I, I, I wish we would have uh, – Yank back of the deficit numbers. I think they're uh, frankly a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit too high. I have some, uh, I have some sympathy on on some front fronts for them in that in that regard. But I still think the spending has been a, a little too hard. But overall, I think they've got the big economic things right in comparison to most of our uh, G7 uh, uh, competitors. Um, and, and at the same time, they've had to deal with a rather wild situation in the U.S. with the, with uh, President Trump. And I think they've done a good job there on NAFTA and others. So on the economic side, I think they're relatively solid. Uh, but, uh, but I don't, I, I haven't seen anything in there that is particularly exciting, uh, in the report so far. So I think it'll end up being a bit of a non-event. Michael Diamond, what would you like to leave us with? I think, you know, today's a, uh, gonna be an exciting day in Ottawa and, uh, question period really is gonna be a big test if, uh, Jagmeet Singh can, you know, not reclaim the ground that Jack Layton or Tom Mulcair had, but, uh, put up a bit of a fight. Uh, it's gonna be really important, uh, to watch into October. Okay, Bob? It's a, it's a real opportunity for, for Mr. Singh to do a bit of a makeover. He was a pretty good MPP at Queen's Park and he was a good, you know, member on his feet in the Ontario legislature. We've seen none of that since he's been the federal NDP leader. This is the op- opportunity for him to hit the reset button. And uh, let's see if he's able to do it. That was Michael Diamond, conservative strategist and political commentator at Upstream Strategy. And Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel at National Public Relations. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Another significant resignation happened this past Monday when Michael Wernick announced he would be retiring as clerk of the Privy Council because he feels he's lost the trust of the opposition parties over the SNC-Lavalin affair. Opposition MPs jeered the Prime Minister that same day in the House of Commons when Justin Trudeau announced the appointment of former Attorney General Anne McClellan as a special advisor to help with concerns raised during the SNC-Lavalin affair. Filling in for Libby on Tuesday, I broke it all down with political strategists Ali Salam and John Capobianco. 
I think this just adds to the whole uh, bad taste of this SNC-Lavalin affair. Um, you know, he's yet another key figure in this to, um, to either have to step down, resign, quit, whatever you want to call it, retire. But there's no question that it's a result of, of this issue. Um, nobody would have known, uh, the public would not have known uh, who uh, Mr. Warnick was or is um, if it wasn't for the fact that he made those two dreadful appearances at the committee, uh, which caused not only the opposition uh, parties to uh, to be up in arms about about his comments, but Canadians uh, and the pundits and, and radio talk shows and, and the news just in general. You know, so um, I think there was no no doubt, uh, even though the opposition parties were calling for his resignation and all calling him to step down because they had lost confidence. I think it was right for him to do that. I think him staying on would have caused problems, but I think it caused. Um, a significant issue with with this affair because it just adds another very key and very senior figure who's left uh, their post because of this issue. But Ali, can can the opposition MPs be upset that he has stepped down when that, in fact, is what they were calling for him to do? I'm sure they'll find a way, Jane. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I w- what I would say is that uh, regardless of how you think Michael Warnick performed uh, during these committee hearings. Um, his stated reason for leaving is uh, is a principled one. I think with the specter of election interference being something that all sides are concerned about in our election this fall, um, having someone that the NDP and the Conservatives just did not have trust in uh, being the person to oversee that uh, process uh, would have left some uncertainty in the minds of their supporters in the least and perhaps Canadians. And so taking this decision at this at this time for that reason, I think, is a principled one, uh, regardless of how the committee hearings have played out. John Capobianco, what about the issues that are so important to Canadians and how by keeping this affair alive in the media or as part of the dialogue, we're not able to make headway on issues that we care about? So it's easy for the Liberals to be able to point their finger and say, well, the Harpers, you know, they didn't do this. But remember, you know, Justin Trudeau came in and campaigned on sunny ways on how he was going to change things and how things were different and how, you know, the bad Harper guys and how what they did was never going to be repeated here again. So it's, 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 it's fun for them to be able to point and say, well, the Harper guys didn't do this. But they got elected or they, they, they went to Canadians on the promise of doing things differently, and they're not. And I think that's where... People are going to get upset. But as you saw with Kathleen Wynne, you could spend, you could try to spend your way out of trouble, as they've tried, they tried to do provincially in the last election. Uh, but voters at a certain point just say, you know what, you're not fooling me, enough's enough, you've lost me now, and you can't do anything with respect to what you're trying to do by way of spending your way out of it, that's going to change my mind. It happened in Ontario in a huge way, and it's going to happen here federally, I think, and that's the problem that they're facing. My understanding of the way these investigations would work would be that it would take someone to write to the RCMP and, and for them to believe that there is something worth investigating. And, and the thing I will point out, though, is that beyond the Justice Committee hearings that uh, are now seemingly uh, beginning to wrap up, um, we've also got a conflict of interest in Ethics Commissioner investigation, uh, Mario Dion, uh, uh, a nonpartisan who's in that role, um, is uh, is investigating the matter. And so there is that also going on. And so I don't and, – and, and there's been no uh, – there's been nothing uh, to indicate that that won't be seeing its uh, its due course. Um, and so I, I would say that uh, I think both of those things are a factor. In terms of, uh, I'm not a lawyer myself, but I would imagine that uh, um, anyone has the right to have, uh, you know, solicitor-client privilege, whether they're the prime minister or yourself or myself. And so I imagine that would certainly apply in these cases. Okay, John, your final comments. Go ahead. This is the kind of issue that I think people will just... 
you know, will not forget. And I think that as much as, as the budget and other things are going to try to get in this way, um, they're not going to get fooled by it. And I think this is going to be a problem as, as they move forward in, in, in the next little bit because it's got to be resolved one way or the other. And you've left, you know, five key individuals or more have left their positions because of it. That's not insignificant. That was Ali Salam, SVP of Public Affairs at National Public Relations, and John Capobianco, Senior VP and Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. In this Me Too Time's Up era we now live in, it seems as though ageism is the last taboo topic which is yet to be fully addressed. It just may even be the last acceptable form of prejudice. So we did some exploring to find out why ageism is still so commonplace and what we can do to combat ageism in the workplace and other areas of society. I spoke with employment lawyer and mediator Ari Kaplan and David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Live and Zoomer U. It's basically a prejudice against people on account of age that leads to an unfair treatment or a stereotyping or, in the case of a job termination, in the case of marketing and advertising, which is not necessarily, you know, illegal, but ageism is the stereotyping of older people as being uh, infirm and helpless and not worthy of the consideration, let's say, of marketers. So in that sense, it maybe gets punished in the marketplace. Much more seriously, in the workplace, it means terminating, uh, and I'm not you know, Ari's the lawyer on, but but it, getting rid of somebody, demoting somebody, downgrading somebody on account of age, where you cannot show, I think, that it caused, uh, you know, a legitimate uh, performance problem. And Ari, is it written down, is it unlawful to let someone go in this province or this country because of their age? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Ontario Human Rights Code is a piece of legislation that specifically protects people from discrimination in their employment on the basis of age. It says right in the code that everyone has the right to be equally treated at work without discrimination based on age. Are there exceptions when age may affect performance or are those other issues? I'm thinking in terms of if you're doing manual type work and you're and you're moving slower than you did 20 years ago. Is that a reason to let somebody go? Yes, so there are absolutely uh, cases and, and statutes and policies about older people at work and being able to do the job. There's been a number of cases, particularly in the area of um, emergency work. You know, I'm talking about uh, uh, firefighters, police officers, uh, and, and other emergency type work where people have been transitioned out uh, when they're older on the basis that they're not physically able to do the work. And that's, that's different from, you know, other cases where, you know, there's a, like, as David said, where there's a, there's a bias or a prejudice that's being applied, you know, discriminatorily to somebody at work on the basis of their age, you know, based on, not on their physical capacities to do the job, uh, but rather based on stereotypes and based on a, a bias that there's an impression that they're less worthy or uh, uh, to do the job in question. What are companies losing? Losing by getting rid of older workers or thinking that it's better to have a younger workforce? Well, the, the good, news, good news is, if there is any here, that uh, not just the human rights of uh, 
ageism, but companies, even when the person willingly retires, they want to leave, the companies are starting to discover at the intellectual property, the knowledge, the institutional knowledge, the shortcuts, the stuff that isn't written in the employee manual. There's actually research starting to be done on this topic, and some companies, particularly in the financial services, are actually doing video exit interviews with people who are willingly leaving to say, I've got to capture all of what's in your brain before you leave the building. And I think that's going to be a very powerful force against ages there will always be the legal issue and the human rights issue. But when companies begin to realize that the older workers are valuable as workers, not just valuable out of let's be decent to the old folks and let's not be mean to them, but substantive reasons why these people are still contributing in some cases – when you see the problems of some of the millennials hitting the workforce, they are more valuable than the younger workers. And I think that's where you're going to see the real revolution coming. Uh, Ari, your final comments. Yeah, so I think going back to the whole purpose of this segment is to create public awareness of the issue. And you asked earlier on what can be done to help educate people about these issues. And having programs specifically like this are, is, is, is a way to do that. People ought to know that they have rights. People ought to be aware that there are problems with you know, implicit biases and stereotypes about older people and that there's a worth and dignity for keeping people like that as a broad part of society. So I think just the public awareness of it will help change the, uh, the landscape. That was lawyer and mediator Ari Kaplan and David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Live and Zoomer U. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Anne in Pickering called to share her experience of ageism in the workplace. I was a law clerk for many, many years and really honed my you know, expertise. And I was actually asked to join a lawyer as they moved. They asked me to move along with them. I felt like I was indispensable. I had an expertise in family law. And as a couple of months went along, they hired uh, younger people. Um, and as time went on, um, I became marginalized. And less and less work came to me. And then about six months before my 70th birthday, I was called into their office. And uh, they told me that they had evolved into a firm that just didn't need a law clerk of my caliber. It wasn't really a surprise because you could see the change in their attitude over time. It wasn't work-related. It was more of a culture change. Bill in East York phoned to share his frustration over trying to make Toronto streets safer. Every time I turn around, it just seems the answer is to spend more money on it. The bike lanes on Woodbine are, are a disaster. The, the cars are now physically parked out in the street. You've mm-hmm. got a hydro pole. You've got cars parked out. You're actually visually impaired from seeing what's coming. The speed is the problem. And it's not the 200 uh, K an hour guy. It's the guy doing 60, 65 in the 40 coming along in front of a park where the road bends and nobody can see. And you know what? Nobody acts upon that stuff. It's just more lights, more speed bumps. Paul in Etobicoke called to say he doesn't blame drivers for the number of pedestrian deaths that continue to rise. The speed limit was lowered to 40 to get rid of pedestrian fatalities and problems with pedestrians getting hit. 
The other one, the lowered even further, doesn't that tell you that it's not about the speed? The speed didn't work. It's pedestrians who are crossing the street mid-street, too lazy to walk five minutes to the light and five minutes back. I mean, that's just plain laziness, and I think it's a matter of education, not penalizing drivers, not backing up traffic because everything is slowed down. Crosswalks and lowering the speed would just make traffic worse in Toronto. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ron in Georgina who phoned to share his thoughts on which guns should be banned. I've been a hunter my whole life, and there's no reason for anybody to own an automatic weapon. You don't go hunting rabbits with an AK-47. Automatic weapons should only be used in the Army or the police force. They've only ever been made to kill human beings. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback@zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow at the same time when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Michelle Saunders. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. 